0: Like Family with Brenda Donahue.
1: In this edition of Like Family,
2: we're looking at families and faith. Ireland and the US used to be almost similarly religious. Now it looks to me uh, that the Irish are about to become less religious than Americans, and certainly in their practice of Catholicism. Belief. What
3: we believe in is very important. I think God is uh, always looking after us.
1: And non-belief.
4: It was kind of a progression from lapsed to non-practicing. To eventually saying, I don't actually believe in any of this.
5: And you can join the conversation on Twitter at Brenda Donahue or email brenda at rte.ie.
1: Ianella is an Orthodox Christian from Romania. Christian Orthodoxy is the fastest growing religion in Ireland in recent years. So,
3: Inge, Inge, Rashul. La? La.
1: In her kitchen in Kildare, she's teaching her son Christian a traditional Romanian prayer.
3: Mare. Yosund.
1: lives 55 kilometers from the nearest Romanian Orthodox Church, so her home is the center of her faith. Masa.
0: Amin.
3: Amin. So the prayer is uh, for protection, it's called um, Angel, My Little Angel, and it's uh, asking the, the angel, if I'm small, you make me big, if I'm uh, weak, you make me strong, and protect me everywhere.
1: Is this Is a prayer you'd say every day? Yeah, yeah
3: every, every evening before going to bed.
1: Yeah, Christian, you
3: can go and watch some cartoons and I'm going to have a chat with Brenda here, okay?
1: Yonela, before we sit down and even chat, I notice on your fridge here, the fridge magnets, we have some religious icons. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about them? Yeah,
3: in the church, we have loads of icons Mm. in the Christian Orthodox churches. Virgin Maria, Jesus Christ, and uh, loads of saints as well. And we'd have them in the house. I have one in the living room. We have one upstairs. So usually in the evening, we'd pray, look at the, um, the icon. Uh, so they are very important.
6: They...
1: In your house here, does it give you comfort? Yeah, mm. yeah.
3: And I, I have the feeling that God is there in the icons for some reason.
1: Someone said to me that being an Orthodox Christian is not just about religion. It's nearly a whole way of life. Well, we would pray in the
3: morning, in the evening, then we'd light the candle every day. Just
1: uh, Where, is it? Where is it later? Can you see? It's just, yeah, it's just, oh, I see. You have it just over yeah, your kitchen. Yeah, yeah. It's in a beautiful candle yeah, holder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what does that symbolise, lighting
3: the candle? To me, I feel like I'm praying to God. Even more like he's closer to me when I do that by lighting the, the candle.
1: So, your kitchen, you've got fridge magnets with icons, you've got a candle lighting. Uh, there's uh, holy water, which what is, is
3: agasma a- 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 in Romanian. Oh, okay. And we'd get it in the church. And then we'd take a sip every morning on uh, empty stomach. And then uh, there's something else, which is um, bread that you take with the, with the holy water as well uh, on the empty stomach in the morning. And then you get that at the confession as well. Is your faith important to you? It is very important, yeah. It's all we have and what we believe in is very important. I think God is uh, always looking after us and he's always there when you need him. And I want, uh, I want my son to, uh, to believe in, in God
1: as well. And how do you do that? How do you maintain it as true it prayer, prayers at night?
3: True prayers and explaining him that everything he gets, everything he has, and everything we have is, uh, thank to to God. And his, his goodness as well.
1: And you yeah. really believe all that? Completely. Yeah, yes. yeah, I do, I do. So, would you say that your religion? Is part of your identity.
3: Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's how we were born. Since I was a child, I remember going... Well, my my granny was uh, bringing me to the church, even though I was so small and I didn't have any patience. I remember I had to stay in the church for a good few hours and listen to the priest. And the mass back home would be quite long. I remember it could last, I think, about three hours, three, four hours. It was very boring, <laughs> I have to say. And I had to stand all the time. So this this is how we were raised, and I wouldn't know a life without it.
1: Is it difficult for you to practice your religion in Ireland?
3: Well, it is more difficult. It is more difficult because I can't uh, get to the church as easily as I was in Romania. Sometimes I feel the need to go, but I can't. I always have to plan when I go, and especially with the, with the boy. Because I miss, I miss going to the church, I miss going, especially like Kinyash would have the Metropolitan Cathedral. And when I go home, I always go there. It gives, it, it gives me so much peace. And when I get out from the, from the cathedral, I feel a different person stronger and calmer as well.
1: So who are we going to call now? Uh,
3: We're going to call
1: my sister-in-law,
3: Roxana, who lived here and they moved back to Romania. Hello, Roxana.
1: Roxana missed the community, connection and identity that a close-knit parish can give And this is one of her reasons for returning to Romania. Hi Roxana. I'm Brenda. Hi, nice to meet you. Where are you at the moment?
7: Um, I'm in Bucharest.
1: Uh, I am looking at you through a video call. You're a Romanian Orthodox Christian, is that right?
7: Yeah, that's right. And
1: what does that mean? We believe in God and we believe in Jesus Christ as well as
7: in Saint Mary. And uh, as Christians very important for us to be baptized since we are very small and for us Christmas and Easter are two very important Orthodox uh, days and I'm not talking now about presents we have special mass in the church and everybody's looking forward to this we have four periods of Lent every year where we give up everything like dairy and meat. And uh, we are going uh, to the church to to participate to the Mass on Sunday.
1: Now, the interesting thing is Yanela and I have been chatting and she came over here for the love of your brother and stayed. But you lived over here, but you went back to Romania and religion was a part of it. Can you tell me a little bit about your story and why you ended up back home.
7: When we arrived in Ireland, my husband got the contract He's an IT professional and we said that we'll only be there for two years. But we fell in love with the country and we ended up staying there for seven years. Now, by the time my son was hitting the age to go to school in Romania, which is seven years old, uh, we had to make a decision if either we stay in Ireland until he will finish school uh, or we are to go back home. Meanwhile, we had Sophia, she's an Irish citizen, she was born there. And um, we decided that uh, we want to teach our kids what it means to be a Romanian and what it means to have a family around you. And we wanted them to know about our tradition, not only by what we were telling them about, by By seeing them and sharing with the family, and religion was very important because um, you see, we are going to church nearly every Sunday, and uh, in Ireland, there was an Orthodox church, but it was quite far away, and we didn't really get to go there, and we were missing this like we would have read uh, you know uh, prayers at home, but it's not the same, you know so part of our decision to get back being there and being part of the community and you know getting this relation with with the with god with the divinity more i wouldn't say official but you just get part of the community and you have a a sense of belonging by going there on a regular basis it's just you cannot get this anywhere else in the world like i think this is what
1: And
8: this is home.
1: I can see you're getting a little bit upset just even talking about home. Oh. Can you describe that powerful emotion for people and why you're so moved as you describe, I suppose, being able to give your children the life that you want to give them?
7: I think everybody who who just lived away from home understands exactly what I'm
9: trying to say. Hmm.
1: Yes, and many Irish people will totally understand what you're saying, Roxana.
7: Yeah, yeah, sorry.
1: That's okay.
7: (laughs) Yeah, I know, that's true, it's just... Home can only be, you know, where you find everything you need in your life. And maybe for some people it can be away. But, you know, for us it was just here. And that's why we decided to get
5: back home.
1: And do you feel closer to God that you're home or do you feel you're able to pass on your faith to your children
7: oh yeah like it's so easy for, for the kids to understand because it's happening you know you just go there you see other people you see other kids you don't learn it because I teach you you leave it and it's just part of us of who we are I don't need to tell them why do we go to church on Sunday we just go because it's part of us
1: Unella, sitting here with me, do you find it hard being away and listening to Roxana there talking about how great it is for her to be home, to go to the church and all of that?
3: Well, beside the church, we don't have as many churches here. But uh, to be honest, this is my home. I got I got settled down here, and I have to say, this is my
1: home. And Roxana, you seem to me like a very happy person now, especially that you're back home and you can practice your faith and enjoy it.
7: Let's just say it's different and it's more like who we are. We can be ourselves much easier if I can say it like this.
3: OK, Roxana, I've been in our museum.
1: Sisters-in-law Roxana and Yunella, who are Romanian Orthodox Christians, I am attending afternoon prayers at the Dublin Mosque. Individual Muslims move to Ireland. Now there are many Irish-born Muslim families. After removing their shoes and performing ritual ablutions, the men enter the mosque downstairs and the women go to pray on the balcony above. prayers, I meet Faisal, welcoming visitors to an open day at the mosque.
10: You're very welcome here to the Dublin mosque on the Santa Circular Road. Hello, how are you? Where, um, where are you from?
8: From Mexico City.
10: Okay, and yourself also? Oh yeah, from Mexico City also. Are you visiting Ireland?
8: Um, no, actually we're studying here. We're, to... we're doing a master's uh, degree oh, in okay. journalism. and uh,
10: For me it's oh. an MBA in project management. What prompted you to come to the mosque yeah?
0: Oh, we pass here nearly every day. She goes in Griffith College and we live in South Circular Road.
8: So, okay, so you see the mosque? Yeah, yeah. we, s- we pa- see it every day, but we were curious today. Yeah.
10: When you pass by the mosque, do you feel that you might not be welcome if you came into the mosque? Do you feel that way?
8: Yes, a little bit. I, I'm, I'm afraid I don't know all yeah. the, the, the the rules. The ru- I don't want to be the rude and you do know. something that I don't. Okay. Yes. So yes.
10: That's one of the reasons now why we have this Discover Islam here. If you want to just walk into the mosque and even watch us pray, you are welcome to do so. And you, All you have to do, we're going to ask you is to take your shoes off. Yes. yes. So many people come here make sure you don't have any holes in your socks. <laughs> 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 don't want to be embarrassed about it. The only
3: thing is that you separate uh, women than, and men, right? When just when you and pray. Uh,
10: and the only reason for that is if you saw the way we pray, you saw it, Brenda, yeah. you saw the way we pray, we prostrate and we go right down and it would be improper for a man to pray behind a woman who's prostrating. It's just out of respect for women that they are severed. That's why we put them on above us. Oh, yeah. They're not downstairs below <laughs> us in the base. <laughs> we don't put them in the basement. They go up on the balcony. All right, oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And remember, you are very welcome at any time to come to the mosque, oh, okay? You. Don't feel, if you want to come and have a meal in the restaurant, you have to pay for it, of course. <laughs> <laughs> <have> <laughs> we will, we, we will. will. Yeah, thank you. Sure,
1: th- thank and thank you. I spot Ahmed. Hi, Ahmed. How are you? Good to see you. We're recording, so... What would you say is your earliest memory of being a Muslim?
11: When we were in primary school uh, on our summer holidays, uh, my dad would usually bring me into work and... uh, i'd usually just play around the mosque it was a lot bigger than from what i remember but now now it's a lot smaller because you know we're growing up and all but um those were good memories i used to play around with my friends and you know shoot rubber bands around the place and uh, those those were the good memories from before and that was the time introduced religion to me uh, just uh you know some some simple steps of prayer and um Sometimes we would pretend to be like uh, the imam and lead the prayer, you know, and we would stand up on the podium there when the mosque was empty. So, um, yeah, those uh, those were the earliest memories from what I can recall. Amala,
1: another member of the mosque, joins the conversation. Uh, What are your earliest memories? Because you would have had a mix of the Christian faith and Muslim faith in your house. Yeah.
5: Again, the mosque really kind of... They would hold iftar, which is kind of a, a meal for breaking the fast here in the mosque during Ramadan, and um, people would just come and you'd all eat together from one tray. It'd be like Muhammad Yusuf, Lord of Mercy, with his rice and chicken. We'd all be kind of looking forward to that. And, and you're so small as a kid as well. Like you wanted, I wanted to fast. And back then, which was what, about 30 years ago now, it was in the summer at that time too, so the days were really long. And I remember my mom saying, "Okay, the day's too long." and you're too small to be fasting so you just you know have your breakfast and then you can fast until lunchtime and then you have something to eat and then you know fast until dinner and i'd be like yeah okay but then i would totally just hide my lunch and try fasting the whole day then because i wanted to be like the grown-ups you know <laughs> <laughs> so just these little things that you uh you yeah. kind of you, you do like as a kid um because you see everybody else you know, doing it and standing in prayer as well with the adults and just like feeling really big and listening to the recitation of Quran like they're nice memories I love standing on the balcony when Imam Yahya is doing the prayer because it brings me back to when I was small and just you can the smells even the the sounds they just they're lovely memories to have. Sometimes How people many children have, of you Emma? I have four
1: four and is it important that you pass on your Muslim faith to them?
5: It is, because Islam is a way of life. Mm. I'm bringing them up, you know, in the Islamic faith. I mean, in the end, there is no compulsion in religion. If they suddenly decide when they're older, which I hope they don't, but that they want to, you know, go their own path, then they are their own person and they're adults then, you know. But, like, we try our best to instill in them the values of Islam and hope that they've carried up with them to be upstanding Irish members of society, but Muslim. How important
1: is it in family life to practice the faith?
10: I suppose, you know, I, I always pray for my children to be practicing Muslims because if by any chance I get to heaven, I would like them also to be with me in heaven. And I, and I think the most important thing is to believe, to hold on to what you believe, because without your beliefs, I think you, you lose certain morals. I don't so say you lose all your morals, but you lose a certain number. Of
1: so for you, it's, a, it's very important to it's pass the faith down yeah. to your children to family, yeah. and to your family. It's,
10: yeah. it's an obligation on me. Mm. It's something that I how will do answer do for. you They come in here to the mosque. They attend uh, the prayers. They will be taught here uh, how to read Arabic, how to learn, speak Arabic, and how to understand the Quran. And they teach them how to pray. Not only that, they teach him the five principles in Islam, as well as how to live. As a Muslim.
1: And for you as a dad, that's very important that they do that. Oh,
10: it's very, very important, yeah. Yeah. I I think that nothing more would upset me if one of my children left the the faith, left Islam and went and practiced something else or just did not practice at all. Because I know for a fact, I stand a slight chance of going to heaven, a very slight chance, it depends on (laughs) God's mercy, but I know my child who has abandoned his religion would never, ever get to it. We don't take it for granted as Muslims that we are, are going to be, we are going to go to heaven. We have to work at it. And by working at it, you have that hope of God's forgiveness.
1: And your children and will your children follow, follow suit, and okay. suit. And while the Open Day is important for the mosque, one particular Open Day is memorable for Ahmed and his wife, Rima.
9: And on the day he was chatting away to, his, was it a Mormon guy?
11: Um.
9: More, something like yeah. that yeah and he was just chatting away to him and then i could hear them start talking about like women's issues and divorce and like women's rights and everything and i was like hold up this is my cup of tea you can't have a man talking about women's rights there so
11: <laughs> rudely cut into our conversation <laughs> just
9: jumped in there he kind of eventually left and was just us two chatting away for like ages i suppose when it, when you come from a muslim background there's no such thing as dating for like long periods of time because i suppose your whole intention there when it comes to to, to like being with someone is to, you know marriage ultimately so I was being like a right old you know yo you can't we can, we're not dating blah blah and I eventually was thinking I was being smart I said hey here's my dad's number I gave him a call thinking it would scare him off because I was like here not a chance and he did call my dad didn't he that's my side story I don't know what happened over there yeah it he's was. looking kind of dazzled <laughs> yeah this what really happened we
11: like yeah yeah it was that's pretty much how we met um, it was it was all very new to me uh, talking to Rima and um, doing things uh, according to Islam.
9: But for me, like, I'd never dated before, do you know the kind of way? So I was being very Muslim about it in a way, whereas I think Ahmed was way more relaxed. Something. Yeah,
11: the, the main thing was is that it wasn't forced. A, l- a lot of the time yeah. people think Muslim marriages are arranged. Yeah. And how we went about things and how our marriage came about was it was all down to her and her parents. So I first had to meet her parents and they had to get a good look at me, see how if I'm not, you know I'm up and down. Yeah, messing about <laughs> or anything like that. And if they were happy with me then the final decision then would be on Rima, like if she wanted yeah. to go ahead with it. Her parents didn't say, you know, oh, you have to get married to such and such a guy. They're very fair about it. Just yeah. like my parents, uh, they didn't. They said, you know, are you sure you want to go through with this?
9: No, but <laughs> I, I, like like Ahmed was saying, the ball was kind of in my court the whole time. Yeah. And that's something I'm constantly trying to have to like say to people like, no, it wasn't arranged. No, it wasn't forced. No, I actually like the guy. And just trying to like remove that misconception that anyone who's Muslim and married isn't happily married. And they're just like stuck there because of like...
1: Their elders of the community, do you know the kind of way. When you both met first, and you mm. could tell there was instant chemistry and all of mm. that, was it important though that you both had similar values? Mm. It was the Muslim faith. Was that important?
9: I suppose for me, that was mm. really important for me at the end of the day because, like, as a practicing Muslim woman, I wanted someone who was on my level that would kind of give me my rights, Islamically as well as like by law. Mm. So I wasn't like giving up any part of me that I felt was. Especially me, whereas that might be completely different to another Muslim woman out there who would marry like a non-Muslim or whatever. But I suppose for me, yeah, that was essential, and that it's the same foundation, it's the same basis. And if I was practicing something, I'd want to have my partner practicing it with me and kind of being kind of a pillar to lean on and kind of support you to it. Because at the end of the day, my felt my faith was important to me, and as a growing kind of Muslim and kind of still learning about it, I want someone that would support me in my learning and in my kind of gaining of knowledge and in my prayers and everything. Not you know, not not th- not, not that I want to say the opposite, but just someone that can mirror that image of myself that I was trying to reflect almost. Okay.
11: Yeah, yeah um, I I I agree with Rima on that point. Um, in in I'd say most recent years, the last five or six years, I started to practice my faith a bit more and uh, try and clear out a lot of you know, say a couple of bad habits I may have had before. And uh, where, when getting back. To your faith, you also want someone to help support you to keep that faith as well, and uh, support your your decisions uh, within the confines of Islam, and basically just feel it's more of a way of life for us, you know. Yeah, it kind of
9: turns. There's a point where it kind of becomes your identity, and it's it's who you are.
11: Ahmed and Rima.
1: I meet Father Niall Coughlan as he prepares children for Holy Communion in the parish of St Catherine of Alexandria in Mead Street in Dublin.
0: What do we want as Christian people? People who believe in Jesus. What do we want? Anyone down the back What to want? Peace. We want peace.
1: It is a lovely occasion, but it is
0: worlds apart from his own First Holy Communion. Back to my own First Holy Communion, I was in a Carmelite monastery in Furhouse Road, and the school was just up the road from it, and afterwards the nuns, the, the curtains were thrown back, and all the nuns who were in behind the grill, were all smiling, the laughter and the joy and the giving us gifts, and so delighted to see young kids in their in their little monastery church. So... It was a lovely occasion. My first Holy Communion was a lovely occasion, but it was a different world. It was a very Catholic world. Today, uh, you make every we make every effort we possibly can to connect, connect the Word of God, uh, to give them a message. Just going home, the message this morning was that we want peace.
1: If we fast track to ten years' time, how will the Catholic Church connect with those families?
0: That's a it's a very difficult thing to forecast. I mean, one thing I will say is that. I hope that every celebration that we have had in the church here has given them a very good experience of church, that they've gone away happy, they've gone away feeling you know we connected, and I think that in maybe maybe in ten years' time when they look back on that or they look at photographs that they got the first I wasn't that a great day, and that they know we're approachable, they know they can come, they know they can knock at the door and say listen kind of a word with you or whatever it might be, I think we're still a strong presence in parishes.
1: Recently I was at the mosque in South Circular Road. They had an open day there and I met many young people who were actively involved in the mosque and in the social activities and lots of young children, all about the families. Do you feel when you look at that, you go, God almighty, I'm a little bit envious.
0: Well, if we had one church or two or three churches, only Catholic churches in Dublin, I'd say we'd have the same type of thing. And, I
1: suppose it's their devotion.
0: Well, I would say, which could, you know, we've had our day. We had our day back in the 1950s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, where, you know, you might have seen the same sort of thing going on uh, there. Um, See how they'll be in 30, 40 years when the culture really impacts on them. Mm -hmm. Um, I I, I, I hope that they will learn from, from us that take heed of the culture. The culture is very, very strong and take heed of it and don't let as we, I think, have done, is allow the culture to overtake us.
2: Father Niall Cochran. it was really very much, in some sense, a list of do-nots and of behaviour and obligation. Professor Michelle Dillon teaches the sociology
1: of religion at the University of New Hampshire, and she has observed the shared beliefs of Irish Catholics in the mid-20th century.
2: Being Catholic meant that you definitely went to Mass every Sunday. And then back in until the mid-1980s, I think that used to be definitely Sunday because... We didn't have the Saturday vigil in those days. You certainly had the Catholic worldview, which meant that you didn't have sex before marriage. You certainly didn't use contraception in marriage or outside of marriage because you weren't supposed to have sex outside of marriage. Uh, Same-sex relationships were given very little discussion Uh, Divorce was a mortal sin um, in most people's understanding. And, of course, abortion really wasn't even talked about, never mind in public, but even in private. It was really the 1983 referendum and the activities of the the pro-life movement at the time that put abortion... Made it a household word, in fact. Uh, So it was a very... It was a very definite uh, way of being. You, it was assumed that you would get married and you would marry a Catholic, uh, and of course that you'd get married in a church. So it was a very definite set of... And it was very cohesive in a sense. It all made sense if people could believe in all of that and abide with those expectations. But of course the reality was very different. Uh, and certainly we saw that beginning to crack already in the 1970s uh, uh, with some of the other changes going on in Ireland because there was a lot of other modernising changes. And I think uh, you know Charles Hoys, um, Irish solution to an Irish problem as he dubbed when he was Minister for Health and he introduced legislation uh, allowing married couples to have access to contraception as long as they had a prescription. Uh, in a sense we we smile at that now uh, you know and in retrospect I think I would identify that as sort of the beginning of the secularization of Ireland because yes it was very restrictive but nonetheless conceded that imagine uh, in marriage you can use contraception. That's against the teaching of the Catholic Church.
1: Michelle believes that for Catholics of the millennial generation, the ties between faith personal identity, community and family are now very loose.
2: What we find, certainly in the American context, is that people's religious behaviour changes over the course of their lifetime. So if you follow the same people over time, uh, adolescence and childhood was at least historically a time of strong religiousness. When you're married with young children, that's also a time when young families are in church because they want to get their children into religious socialisation as well as doing it at home, but they like the, the imprimatur of the church. And then we have noticed that people in middle age, when kids have gone, left home, gone to college, gone out of you know, the empty nest, then parents take a bit of a break and say, well, I can golf on Sunday, I don't need to go to church. But then, as they approach retirement and they have more time on their hands, we see many returning to church. Uh, I think in, in Ireland, historically, people maintain their constancy of their relationship to the church regardless of what age, more or less, they were. But I think what we're seeing now, and that I think we're seeing in Ireland, is um, that people in their 20s and 30s, this is particularly a generational story. Uh, It's not just younger people who are no longer affiliating or identifying as Catholic. It's particularly pronounced among those in their 20s and 30s. And this is also something that we see parallel in the US. But in fact, Ireland and the US used to be almost similarly religious. Now it looks to me... Uh, that the Irish are about to become less religious than Americans, and certainly in their practice of Catholicism. And what's interesting about this is that these 20-somethings and 30-somethings are shifting away from church, and it looks, given the rest of what's going on in their lives, they're also postponing marriage. Many, of course, are cohabiting, not getting married. They're postponing having children, or they're having certainly fewer children than even their own older siblings, in fact. Uh, and so these are all in the past, were triggers that brought people back into church, because they were if it's a sort of a conventional lifestyle. Whereas now, this younger, you know, people in their twenties, and particularly those in their late twenties and early thirties, are in a sense eschewing all of those traditions to some extent. And what that seems, it may be reversed, but what it seems is that we really are witnessing a generational sea change that those who now are less likely to identify as Catholic are probably unlikely to identify as Catholic ten years from now. Some will, but I think a lot are drifting, and that drift will continue, perhaps. I mean, it looks like it will. Yeah, I may be wrong. We don't like predicting the future, but in terms of what we know from previous studies. Uh, but it also means that they'll also be bringing up their children in a less religious, more secular environment. And that, in turn, we would expect, would dilute the religious ideas or identity of their own children. So there is then this ongoing generational replacement effect which makes society more secular rather than religious. Professor Michelle Dillon.
8: Nanny, um, what is that?
6: Well, that's just a wee altar with um, the Holy Family.
1: In the parish church next door to their home... Magella explains about the Holy Family to her three granddaughters, the children of her own daughter Stephanie.
6: This is to let people know that they're a family.
9: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Back in Steph's kitchen, Magella explains the world of faith she grew up in. Well,
6: religion was all important at that time because, like, from you were no age, you would have had to say your morning prayers, then your night prayers, and your prayer to your guardian angel. The rosary was said from as far back as I can remember, every single evening in the house, Um, and even when we were on holidays, and me and the cousins used to be roaming about the beach at night, and we would think, if we get far enough up this beach they won't send for us, you know, for the rosary, (laughs) but they always did, we were always found no matter how far away we were. And then school, you know, I mean you had your catechism and you had to learn the questions wrote, you know who is god and what is god and you know, what's a, what's a mortal son and what's a venial son and i'm sorry i didn't keep one of those catechisms you know just just to have it for for a, mem- a memento just to look back and see but even then like when you were making your first communion then the priest came down and he did he asked you questions and, and your catechism and you were quick and you know in case you didn't get them right <laughs> you wouldn't get making your first communion. Mm. There was uh, devotions on at six o'clock on a Sunday. You went to them, and and then they had the forty hours where there was exposition of the Blessed Sacrament for forty hours, and and the the, the church was all the altar was all decorated with flowers and candles, yeah. and and you went, and you daren't open your mouth, you daren't speak because the exposition was there and our Lord was on the altar, and you you know if he even moved wrong, you get a look. <laughs> you know? So, it was a it was a big big part of our of our lives, really. You know. I wish we had a camera here because I'm looking <laughs> at your daughter <laughs> Steph's
8: face as you're explaining that. What are you thinking, Steph? I don't know what any. I honestly don't know what any of that stuff is. I mean, I've heard of the Catechism, but mm. I don't. You know, I don't. We'd none of that when I was at school. There was nothing oh. like that, and you, I didn't have to go to all those things. No. I remember going to things with my nanny. Would they would do it uh, every Sunday or every couple of weeks where there'd be a big gold thing up in the altar. Yeah, oh,
9: that's, a, a, that's a 40
8: hours. Is it? Yeah. Well, I didn't mind going to that because mm-hmm. there was no talking. You just kind of sat there. Mm-hmm. I don't even think there was a priest well, they, leading they it. The they, did. they said the rosary
6: and they, they had uh, what they called benediction.
8: No I don't know mm. Well maybe it was the same thing I don't remember but I do, I do, don't. do you feel
1: that was an awful lot or There was a lot of fear in what she just said there really? About mm. making sure you didn't look the wrong way When you were in the church
8: It just sounds like so much re- Regimented is the word mm. That kind of jumps out at me That kind of having to do the rosary every single night And having to do You know Going to all the different mm. things
6: Who in the family kept the religious faith going? Mostly it would have been uh, my mom. My dad was, he was religious, but he wouldn't have been just quite as in your face with it, sure, he wouldn't as?
8: Well, I wouldn't remember my granddad that well. (laughs) A lot of people would say that, you know, with the whole argument about the, Women not being allowed to take part in church and not being allowed to become priests, they say there wouldn 't be a church if it hadn 't been for the women mm-hmm. <laughs> making sure that all the kids were there and bringing the whole family to it
6: Aye, it would have been it would have been the woman you know and the woman had hard lives too then you know and it was it was really um, it was it was really the only comfort in many ways that they had you know, and even the church wasn 't very kind to them, despite their faith you know even even my mother she talked about women who we having children year after year and they would go to the priest and the priest was more or less telling them, you know, you made your vows and if your husband wants to be in his own room, that's where he's to be. You know, she knew a few people that did die in childbirth because of that and she felt that was wrong,
8: you know. I think especially in older years, she was starting to question a wee bit.
1: It wasn't that long ago.
8: It's hard to believe, like it is hard to believe, like because it does sound so alien the changes have been so huge in the last 20 or 30 years since I was born. Mm. I mean, the Eighth Amendment was put in in 1983, which was the year I was yeah. born. And who would have thought then, you know, what would have happened this year? So listening to what it, it does, it do, it doesn't sound real. You know, it just it's, it's hard to wrap your head around. They accepted things as God's will.
6: Mm. You know, they did accept and believe that I suppose that this was to be a veil of tears, <laughs> which for most people it is in one way or the other. Um, and and they, they they got on with it, you know, when they 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 had their rosary and their devotions and their novenas and all the rest of it.
8: But a um, way is that all well, that's what they had, you know. Women didn't get jobs; it was the thing that you did, and it was probably a relief in between having twelve kids and washing all them clothes and cooking and cleaning and looking after your husband. <laughs> do you know? It probably was nice yeah. to get together with other women. Now we'd still do it, but it's you know we have book clubs. Is there an element? to that to it I mean there is because it, you, you feel part of
6: something mm. you know when I go to mass or, or, or whatever I feel and I meet people there I feel part of the parish mm. you know part of the community and, and that is that is part of it so Magella,
1: where are you at now with your own faith
6: well I mean my my faith to me it's, it's still important um, I mean I've had difficulties in my life I've had um, problems with alcohol which were very bad and, and you know and I at one time lost practically everything um, and I do believe that, that that my God in a way brought me back um, from the brink um, you know and helped me to get back on my feet and help me to move on and, and do more courses and get more education and you know work now with people who who have drug, alcohol, and, and gambling problems? That's what I do. So let me
1: be clear: you work as an addiction counsellor. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah.
6: Okay. Um, and it meant also that I was able to, you know, be a mother, which is the most important thing to my children, because that wasn't happening.
1: And can you explain a little more how your faith would have helped you get back on track?
6: Um, it was just the belief that that um, something more was was meant for me. That you know that I was putting this earth for something more than than the way I was living, um, and that God was God was there. He was looking down at me. It was it was he was reaching out, if you like. But it was just always the belief um, that there was something there was something more. There was something more to life, and it was it was to do with God and the universe, and and you know something greater than me. So, Magella, your faith's
1: obviously very important mm-hmm. to you. It got you through a dark period, mm-hmm. and then Steph says, "Not for me, Mum. The mm-hmm. church." <laughs> Tell me about that, Steph. What happened? Um,
8: I just remember when I was in secondary school, really kind of being like, "That's it, right? I'm not. I don't. I don't go to mass anymore, <laughs> pretty much." You know. Okay, so would you not believe in anything? Oh, you see, I'm not. I'm not atheist. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not atheist, and I'm not. I suppose I'm agnostic. I, you know i kind of believe in you know i'd like to think of myself as spiritual you know i there might be a god i'm not saying there isn't a god you know but I, i just don't i don't feel the need to be a part of a church or i don't feel any sort of a draw to it um but none of my children are christened and i didn't get married in a catholic church and it never even entered my head like it just wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a, well, we won't we situation. It was uh no, why would we? You know, when other people asked. So obviously some people in the family kind of didn't push it or didn't, you know, they, they knew there was no point. Other people would have, you know, friends. But would you not have the christening? But sure, would you not just, you know, give everybody the day out? <laughs> you know, this guy. And I say, no, I won't, you know, like, why would I? You know, and after all my wax and lyrical about the church and giving off stink about them and you know all the different uh, scandals that came out and everything like there's no way I could have there's no way I could have stood up in a church and you know christened my kids then after being so outspoken about how I wasn't a Catholic anymore and that I wasn't taking part in the church.
1: And Magella, when Steph said right I've had enough that's not for me mm. how did you feel?
6: Um, I, I just, I just remember going uh, one Sunday thinking, I didn't hear her going out to Mass and, uh, going up the <laughs> <Sorry>. stairs. <laughs>
8: Steph has just rolled her eyes. <laughs>
6: <laughs> I went up the
8: stairs. Twelve o'clock, I probably wasn't up yet. <laughs> yeah.
6: I went up the stairs and she was still lying in the bed and she wouldn't get out of it. And actually, my mum was still alive at the time and we were, we were living with her and i think i was more worried about what my mother would say if
8: she found out more than i was annoyed i probably would have kept it for my nanny as well you know i wouldn't have wanted to upset her at the same time you know i wouldn't have wanted her to be upset but i wouldn't have had um i wouldn't have been laying it on the line for her and saying you know it's all nonsense and it's all rubbish and like, you know i would never would have questioned her faith.
1: so you have three children, Steph, and none yeah. of them are baptized no no officially no officially officially. <laughs> officially i'm sure
8: they've all been baptized several times okay, actually <laughs> so
1: can i come to granny here what happened what do you mean officially
6: i think that was the one time i did feel a bit uh was when she said now neve the oldest girl wasn't going to be baptized i did feel a bit oh my god you know i think it was the one time i did feel hurt or i don't know what way i felt Though i wasn't pleased to put it that way um, but then I thought sure why would she you know and, and so I just baptised her myself
1: <laughs> talk me through baptising them you did it yourself Magella.
6: yeah well it was just a matter of throwing some water over them and saying a wee blessing you know um, that was it and then a friend of mine Father James he, he blessed her too one time
1: and why was that important to you
6: I just I don't know it just made me feel that they were part of the, the Christian community I suppose Mm. I mean, Stephanie's baptised too, you know. Mm. So I just thought it'd be nice if they were as well. I mean, I told her. It. Well, I didn't do it and not tell
8: her. I told her. I know. I don't mind. I'm not... Um, like, I'm not anti-religion. So I never said, like, they'll never be baptised or that I, that I wouldn't allow them to be baptised or, you know, I wouldn't allow them to go to mass or church. I'm not against religion. I want them to be tolerant of all religions. I want them to be tolerant of all people. But I... I can't raise them the Catholic faith because I don't consider myself to be a Catholic.
6: Okay. How does that make you feel? No, and that, I mean, I am fine with that. Um, I have been fine with it for a long, long time. And, uh, you know, and when Steph was getting married, I mean, it, it was no shock to me that she wasn't getting married in the Catholic Church. And that was fine, too, because I respected her reasons for it. You know, she'll barb at me about things and I'll barb back at her, you know. Um, I think George Bernard Shaw was an atheist and my Aunt Maureen always told the story about word that he had died came through and my mammy was ironing and she was going, now you'll know whether there's a hell or not, No, you know. And <laughs> 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 that, that would have been the kind of her, you know, but uh, but you know, she would make fun. you know, if I'm telling the, the ch- kids stories about Adam and Eve or that, she'll say to me, oh, you listen to you and them fairy stories again, you know that's all nonsense, don't you?" And and I'd be saying back to her, oh, you'll know all about it. But that's kind of good
1: natured. For Magella, as a young person, her religion was about faith, family, community and identity. But now, for both mother and daughter, it is a personal matter. From Donegal
4: to Cork. 1986. Oh, look at the wedding picture. Yeah. I like the beard. That's the and Chapel, yeah. yeah. I like the hair on the head more so than the beard.
1: <laughs> um, Peter grew up in a Catholic family and worked all his life hair. as a teacher and later a principal of a Catholic primary school. He is one of almost half a million Irish people who said in the last census that they had no religious yeah, belief.
4: Yeah, she's, uh, she's great. Both very pretty, Brenda, as you can see. Oh, of course. Beautiful yeah. smile, and yeah. this is that's Finn, Finn. By, that's Finn years and years making ago. his communion As, and look picture. At that? Absolutely. Look
1: at that. Although Peter conformed to religious practice for much of his life, from a very early age, he discovered that he didn't have a personal faith.
4: We had a teacher when I was in school called Mrs White, and I remember asking her, what is a soul? And she told me that the soul is a white disc next to your heart, and every time you sin... A black blemish appears on it and that frightened the living daylights out of me and um, of course she said that every time you go to confession you get clean slate the you, you confess to Jesus you tell him all your sins and it, it's white clean but and I was only six or seven and I wasn't gifted or I wasn't uh, I wasn't some sort of child prodigy genius I was just a child going I don't actually believe that but the same teacher, and she was a great teacher, she took us to the, I think, the Natural History Museum and there was a, um, this model of the human anatomy and there were labels pointed to different parts of the anatomy and it was totally, it was brilliant. But try as I might to find a label saying soul. There was no label saying soul. And I do remember, and it's funny, and I've never thought about that, you know, until quite recently, you know, as to where, you know, where might my um, non-believing self have been born? I think it was in that moment.
1: And then what happened?
4: I would have stopped completely going to Mass in my early 20s um, and then you play the conformist game again because, you know, you fall in love and you get married. Are you going to get married in the Catholic Church? Yeah, of course I am. Why not?
1: I know, I was just looking at pictures of the whole of yeah. You and your lovely wife yeah. on your wedding day. So that was obviously <laughs> in a
4: church. <laughs> we got married in the Holy Chapel in UCC, but I think it had, looking back in it, I think she'd freely admit this, it was more of this romantic idea of going back to UCC to get married than to get married in a church. But I just wanted to, you know... I wanted a happy day for everybody. It didn't kill me to stand up there on the altar.
1: As part of the vows of the marriage ceremony, it says, you know, when you have children that you're going to bring them up in the Catholic faith. How did that sit with you?
4: Uncomfortably, but I did it. Um, I have three children. They were all baptised. They all made their communion. They all made the confirmation. And after that, it's up to them. But I don't think any of them practice.
1: So what was the moment where... People knew that you were a non-believer. Did you come out, so to speak?
4: There was no one day where I said, "Okay, um, that's it, I've finished. I I suppose there was kind of a progression from lapsed to non-practicing to eventually saying, I don't actually believe in any of this. But I suppose it was uh, when my last child made his confirmation, the ceremony meant absolutely zilch to me. And I kind of thought, I'll never have to go through this again. And I don't want to go through this again.
1: Yeah. So you got married, you're bringing your children up to get baptized, communion, confirmation, and you're teaching in a Catholic school. Mm. Did you ever just have moments where you went, ah, I can't believe I'm having to conform all this time. Or did you feel you were living a lie?
4: No, it, it, it actually was a little bit easier than you might think, because when you're contracted to a Catholic school, it's a professional arrangement. So... Your obligation is to play your part in upholding the Catholic ethos within that school. So then you have to ask yourself, what does that actually mean? Well, as a principal of the school, it means that to ensure that religion is taught for half an hour every day in every class. And I had no problem ensuring that would happen because it was just a question of timetabling. To ensure that the children were prepared for sacraments so that you would assist in the preparation and again, that was just it. So I, I went about it professionally, Brenda, even though it did prick my conscience so, so often. Can I be clear? What do you not believe in? I don't believe in God. I don't believe that there is life after death. I can say this now from a position of some authority. When you're facing an oncologist and he tells you you've got a stage four cancer, and, and that's the bad news. Now the good news is he says it's, you know, th- that I could live for quite a long time yet and I, I totally attend doing so. But when he tells you that, you kind of go, do I actually not believe or do I believe? And it copper fastens the non-believing because I wasn't one bit and I am not one bit afraid of dying. When the time comes and you draw your last breath, that's it. There is nothing afterwards. So many of us go through life, myself included, worrying about what is there afterwards. And not kind of realising there's so much in the present. There's so much to be thankful for on a day, on a minute by minute basis, on a day by day basis. And when you're given news like I was given, it helps you to focus on the, at the absolute beauty of the now and living in the now. And any kind of preoccupation with the after and the future is a total waste of time. So it has fastened to me that there is nothing beyond the last breath. To me, it's not high theology, or it's not a, a theological discourse. It's just a question of, you ask me a straightforward question, what do I believe in? I believe there is no God. I believe there's no hereafter. And I'm so happy that I can actually say that now without any feelings of hypocrisy at all?
1: All your life, you've marked important uh, occasions through the church—communion, confirmation, weddings, etc. What about death? What are your thoughts on that? Are you going to have a church funeral? Have you thought about it? And um, I'm not preempting
4: your your no, Please Don't or please, don't, Brett. Neither neither will I. But I think by even by answering the question, I could be. So I'm on dodgy ground. But yeah. I'm, I know it's a good question. Jerry and I have discussed it. When the time does come my coffin will not enter a church. That is one thing I'm absolutely certain about. It will go, hopefully, to a crematorium where hopefully there'll be music, there'll be laughter, there'll be nobody crying, there'll be nobody wearing black, there'll be, hopefully, people will celebrate. You see that the whole idea of of leading a good life, I think, is so important. and You know, Somebody asked me recently. They challenged me on this in a pub. All the best arguments take place in a pub. But a good friend of mine said to me, "You could not be an atheist because you're too spiritual." And, and I'm not spiritual. I don't believe in spirits. I don't believe in ghosts. But I understand what you're saying. I do think a lot about things which people could confuse with being spiritual. And he said, "But you know, your dad died. You were very close to him." And he said, "Do you just think?" And you say, "He's nowhere now. He's gone." I said, "But that doesn't mean memories don't stay." Uh, so I would think about my dad every day. So that doesn't mean he. His spirit is with me, his memory is with me and I think there's a, there's a distinction that some people get it gets blurred at times but it's very clear in my head. And how would his life have been
1: different if from his early adult life he was able to be true to his
4: non-belief? My life would have been a lot easier if I could have applied for the job that I really wanted which was primary school teaching without having to pretend that I believed in God. That did make things difficult. A survey from Galway School of Education, which was a research into the religiosity of new teachers and the, the the authors of that report discovered that 30% were going into the profession, going to take up jobs, obviously, in one of the 96% denominational primary schools in the country, but going in with non, either not practicing any religion or not believing in God. And I just kind of felt that was the same for me in 1980. Th- things don't change, but people change, and young people today are far more assertive and power- they know what they want and they know what they don't want. So they don't want to go into profession where they have to pretend to be something else. And why should they? I think our society has to open up to that.
1: And that was Peter Gunning. That's all for this edition of Like Family. Thanks to all those who took part in the programme. Thank you for listening. And this programme was produced by Eileen Hearn.
5: For more information, check out rte.ie
1: forward slash radio one forward slash like family.